Why do Romeo and Juliet still move college English classes today? Because deep inside, all of us want to fall in love. When you mention the word romance, names like Shakespeare, Austin, and Keats come to mind. Why not God? I'm Mary Wurtson, and this is Truth Encounter, a program committed to helping you fall in love with the biblical Jesus Christ. Satan works hard to make religion a dull lecture about morals and stringent rituals, but God, the God of the Bible, faces us with a creator who is hungry for love. Let's join Dave Wurtson, our Truth Encounter study leader, as he introduces us to a church that was filled with truth, but one that had lost its divine romance. As we listen, we all need to ask, how is your love life with God? One of the things that makes us have a lamp, causes us to bring light to the world, is if we have a divine romance with God. People that worship with us, they should realize as they gather together in our midst that here's a people that are really in love with Jesus. They're in love with him. They respond to him. They adore him. Some of you husbands can remember when you were courting your wife, and I remember, for example, that Mary and I met for a couple weeks at the end of, of the summer in August, and then she went back to Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, and I went back to Houghton College. We're about a thousand miles away from each other, and man, I wrote letters every day, and I could hardly wait to get to the mailbox, to get that letter from Mary. And man, when I got that letter, I would tear it up, and not tear it up, but I would tear it out. <laughs> I would tear it out and I would begin to read it. And I could hardly wait to find out what was going on in Mary's life. And I wanted to receive that message from her. Some of you ladies have the letters that your husband wrote to you. And you've got him in a box. And, and every once in a while you go back over those letters. That's a romance. You're built for that. As we grow older, as we grow older, we tend to fall out of that. We fall into seriousness and we fall into life is so heavy and there's responsibility. And don't you know that you need to grow up? And that's why it's so important for us as we turn in the book of Revelation to chapter 1 and 2 today. We need to realize that in Christ, the Lord doesn't want you ever to grow up in your devotion and romance towards him. In biblical faith. God is not ashamed to use the imagery of sexual love. He's not ashamed to use the fervency of the passion of the love that's generated between a man and a woman. He's not ashamed to use it as a symbol of the kind of relationship that he wants to have with us today. In the Old Testament, as he wrote the book of Hosea and also in the book of Jeremiah, one of the things that the prophet Hosea and Jeremiah accused the people of is that they had fallen out of love. They were just going through the motions. They were going to the temple to worship. They were doing the sacrifices, but there wasn't any passion anymore. There wasn't any fire anymore. And all of you know in your heart, every one of you know in your heart, you don't want a, a marriage without passion. Many of you have friends, and some of you have found that the passion's gone out of your marriage. You're just kind of going through the motions, and suddenly when the kids are away from home and they've grown up, you just split out of that marriage. Because in the modern society, we want passion so badly, we want love so badly, that what we do is we trash our legitimate commitments and we go after passion. 
We do the same thing in churches. We grow old in a church. We, we're going along in a church. And we start to find that we're just going through the motions. We're just going through the ritual. And what often happens in our society today is that we just jettison a relationship with believers and we go somewhere else and we try somewhere else and we try to renew the passion that way. And I want to suggest to you that the Lord says, listen, the problem isn't just with things that are happening around you. The situation isn't just the style of worship or it's not the the kind of Sunday school they have or it's not the style of the preacher. It's possible that we need to look within. Just like in my marriage, if my relationship with Mary is growing cold, I don't have to look very far. I have to look inside of me. And the Lord Jesus today invites us to look inside of our heart and he wants us to take a fervency, a divine romance check. He wants us to ask ourselves, how is your heart today? And how are you responding to Jesus today? If we open up to Revelation chapter 1, we first of all begin with a divine outline of the book. And the Apostle John says that as we receive this message from the Lord, turn to the Revelation chapter 1. We were looking at this vision of the exalted Christ. And the picture that we had was of Christ moving in our midst. What a powerful scene. As we had this royal, priestly, prophetic figure with this long robe, which was a symbol of power and his royalty. We had his white hair, this symbol of omniscient wisdom, of maturity, of everlasting uh, guidance for his people. We had uh, his strong uh, legs that were just like radiating, glowing brass. And they expressed the strength that he has. And we talked together about how Christ isn't going to cave in in our midst. And we're not going to wake up someday and found out men alive in Midlothian Bible Church. We worship the wrong being. He just fell over. Isn't it great to know that we don't have some idol like the ancient Philistine idols that falls off its pedestal and breaks in pieces? Man, Jesus has strong legs and he's going to walk in our midst forever and ever and ever. We learned about his fiery eyes, those penetrating fiery eyes that, that reach forth and they're eyes that purge us. There's eyes that expose all that's going on. There are also eyes that look upon our enemies and will defend us. And one day we learn the book of Revelation will bring total victory for his people. So last week we saw this vision of the glorified Christ. But that glorified Christ says in verse 19, he gives a command to the Apostle John. And it's why we're studying this book, because this book is given to us by a direct command by this exalted, ascended, glorified Savior. He says to John, John, write therefore what you have seen. What he wrote was the vision that glorified Christ. When John heard those words, what he had just seen is this incredible vision where the veil of heaven was torn away and he allowed this earthly man to see heavenly realities. Janae was saying she wanted just to raise her hand and interrupt. Are we going to see this kind of stuff when we go home to be with the Lord in glory? Yeah. I think that if you are into the visual and the powerful and dramatic I mean, just study these prophetic passages. I think when we go home to glory, that we're going to see colors like we've never seen before. I think we're going to see sights like we've never seen before. I think there's going to be an incredible, powerful multiplication of all the beauty, of all the joy, of all the incredible experiences that we've had here on planet Earth. Heaven's not going to be some dull, boring place. It's going to be filled with awesome kind of power. You can just see from this vision that the glorified Christ gave to John the power of Jesus' artistic and dramatic skill. I want you to understand that. I want you to realize that we have incredible things to look forward to. 
You have incredible uh, visions that we're going to see. And, and then it's not going to be a vision because we're going to see face to face. We're going to be in that spiritual world. And we're going to be entering into it experiences that you can tell as you're reading the book of Revelation. When John tried to describe what he's seeing in the spiritual dimension, it's like he's just fumbling to find the right words because the words are breaking down. And so as you anticipate being home with the Lord, I want you to have a tremendous joy in realizing that there's incredible experiences that lie ahead. Tremendous joys and happiness and beauty and also tremendous truth. And so, yeah, we will enter into experiences that are even greater than what John is having here. We're going to be with those thousands upon thousands that we're going to see in Revelation 4 and 5 that are singing, Worthy is the Lamb. Can you imagine gathering together with millions upon millions upon millions of believers and singing to the Lord? What an experience that's going to be. So as we anticipate going home with the Lord, we can have a tremendous confidence that it's going to be more than we would ever imagine. It's going to be dreams like we've never had, and it's all because of this incredible Savior that we have. So John is commanded, I want you to write the things which you've seen and in the word of God when we get a vision of the eternal realities, we capture just a glimpse because as Paul tells us, we always now just see through a glass darkly. But then the Lord writes this, I want you to write not only what you've seen, but I also want you to write what is now. What is present? And that's what we're going to be doing the next several weeks as we look at the letters to the churches. What we have in Revelation 2 and 3 is the setting in life that we're living in now. It's the church age. It's the age of grace. It is the time where Jesus is calling out a bride for himself. It began at Pentecost and it will, co- it will close at the coming of Jesus for his bride at the rapture. We'll be talking about that as we go through the book of Revelation. And that's the present time period. Those are the things which are. And in the letters to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3, we have seven historical Asian churches. But we also have seven churches that represent the way the churches will be all through the church age. Sometimes there's those that teach that we have like a progression historically. I'm not sure that that's what John really had in mind. Because for one thing, John has in mind the idea that Jesus can come back at any time. And if he was giving the history of church church history from the Ephesian church of the first century, working through the persecuted church of the second church century, ending up in the Laodicean church, which we're supposed living today, if he was meaning to give a history, it would mean that all of that history would have to take place before Jesus could come back. And that would invalidate the first century's church's belief that Jesus could come back at any moment. The first century church lived anticipating Jesus. So what I really think that we have is not the Lord predicting that we're going to have all these hundreds of years of church history and the church is going to go through these seven cycles. Although the Bible does reveal that there is going to be a great apostasy, a great turning away. There is going to be a a lukewarm compromise that there's other prophecies that teach that. And Laodicea definitely talks about the fact that there were some churches in the first century that were like that. But what I believe that we have as we write about the things which are, we have an analysis of the living Christ moving among churches down through church history at any period. And we have these seven kinds of churches. And we're going to see ourselves 
as we study these churches, we're going to find out that they're addressed not only to individual churches, but they're addressed to all the churches together. And so it's very important. This is a very rare opportunity. You say, if, if, if Jesus was visibly with us and Jesus was speaking to us today, what would Jesus talk to us about? And Revelation 2 and 3 give us an opportunity to hear the resurrected, exalted Christ really talk to me and really talk to you about how he evaluates what's going on in a local group of believers. And so that's the things which are. Seven, the number seven represents a number of completion. So I believe that we have kind of the A to Z, the complete disclosure of what churches will be like down through the centuries until Jesus comes. This Christ that's moving invisibly in our midst at any moment can become visible and we'll be caught up to be with him. So those are the things which are. Beginning in chapter four, we're going to have a major break. The Apostle John's going to be caught up into heaven. He's going to see a tremendous vision of a great issue in heaven that's raised over who can open the book of destiny. Who can open the book that will bring history to its conclusion. It's almost like the book of Daniel, where in the book of Daniel they predicted that we needed to close the writing. Remember when we said the book of Daniel, the Holy Spirit, the angels of God, and the Lord Jesus said, that's enough, seal the book, we're not going to tell anymore. It's almost like in Revelation 4 and 5, God says, all right, now it's time to tell the rest of the story. And what we have in Revelation 4 through 19 is the great period of the tribulation, which we're going to learn is the 70th week of Daniel. It's the week that Daniel predicted when God would powerfully begin to work with his Old Testament people again. And we're going to have no mention of the church like us, the the bride of Christ, the assembly of Jesus. We're not going to have any mention of the church for all the way from Revelation 4 all the way till chapter 19. Why? Because God's going to refocus on his Old Testament Israelite people because God never leaves any loose ends. And right now, the Jewish people are, for the most part, disregarding his Messiah. They curse Jesus. They don't believe in him. They're very powerfully, those that are very orthodox are antagonistic against him many times. But there's going to come a day when the heart of the Israelite nation is going to respond again. And the book of Revelation speaks to us about that day and reminds us of the inclusiveness of our Savior reaching out to all people. And then as we begin Revelation 20 through 22, we're going to have the church mentioned again. We're going to be united with God's people all through the ages. And all of us are going to become one gigantic assembly of those that are living intimately with God through the blood of Christ. And this is the holy outline of the book of Revelation. The things which you've seen, the vision of chapter 1. The things that you're presently experiencing, the church age, Revelation 2 and 3. The things which shall be after these things, after the present church age, then we have the rest of the book of Revelation, which is going to speak to us about stuff that's still future to us, although there will be many things through those chapters that will go back over the history of God's dealings with his people. For example, in Revelation 12, we're going to put together in beautiful symbolic form the history of God dealing with his people down through the ages. So here in Revelation chapter 1, verse 19, if someone says, well, Dave, what in the world is Revelation about? Maybe a friend at work says, man, I don't understand this book, and I don't know what's going on. Well, now you can say, man, it's a very simple outline. 
It begins by getting our eyes on Jesus, focusing on this great, exalted Savior and King. Then we have chapters 2 and 3, the things which are the present age that we're living in as God calls out a bride for his son. And then chapters 4 through the end of the book, we have the things which will take place after these things, after the completion of the church age. Jesus goes on and says this, the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this, that seven stars are the angels or the messengers of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And then we begin chapter 2 with him writing to the angel of the church in Ephesus or to the messenger of the church of Ephesus. So the Lord says that he's holding these seven stars and then he said that those seven stars represent seven messengers. The word angel, angelos in Greek, is the word that literally means messenger. A heavenly supernatural being that's called an angel is a messenger of God. For example, Gabriel, when God wants to communicate his message to the Virgin Mary about the birth of the Savior in her womb, the conception of the Savior in her womb, you have the messenger, the angelos, the angel, sent from heaven to the Virgin Mary. And the angel acts as a messenger. This is very true to the book of Daniel. Gabriel, Daniel's praying in Daniel chapter 9. God sends Gabriel to speak to his prophet, to renew him, to give him revelation. And the angelos, the messenger, is sent out. But the word can also be used of John the Baptist. The book of Malachi said that the Lord would send his herald out before the Lord. And so we have John the Baptist, who is the messenger of the Lord. And he is called in the Gospels, he is the angelos of God. He's the messenger of God. So the word angel, meaning messenger, can stand for what we ordinarily use the English word angel for, like a Gabriel, like a Michael, like a messenger angel sent from heaven. But it can also stand for a human being who is responsible for declaring the message of God to the people. I believe that because it says that this letter is written to the messenger, and then it closes, if you'll notice at the end of the letter, verse 7 of chapter 2, it says, He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So as we talk about the recipients of these letters, there's a messenger who's addressed, who's to receive the letter. Then we close the letter with the fact that the letter has been addressed to all those in the church, and not just in the Ephesian church, but let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, so all of us are included. It's all the churches of Jesus Christ. And so the recipient is not just an angel... Because the things that are talked about are not the things that angels would be concerned about. In other words, hardship and, and being patient and enduring up under trial. Those are not the kind of struggles that angels have. They're the kind of struggles that we have. And all the message to the churches relate to people like us. What I believe we have here, I believe the messenger was the individual that was responsible in the early Ephesian church or the early Smyrna church for receiving the prophetic message from an apostle like John. They would be responsible for copying it over. And most importantly, they would be responsible for reading that message in the church and being used of the Spirit to see it applied. 
I believe in the modern church, it's very much what we see in the role of the gift of pastor-teacher. The book of Ephesians tells us that the Lord laid the foundation of the church, Jesus the chief cornerstone, and then apostles and prophets joining Jesus and laying the foundation of the church. That's how we receive the scripture, Genesis through Revelation. It goes on in the book of Ephesians to say that this foundation is then built upon two special gifted individuals. One is the evangelist. The evangelist is the individual that has a a tremendous desire to proclaim the good news of Jesus. And they have a great desire to equip God's family in proclaiming that good news. Those of you in our midst that are gifted as evangelists have a great passion to be with unbelievers. You mobilize the family to want to get the good news out. When my dad was alive, my dad would come almost every time, every year, to our church family. And I would tell my dad, he'd say, what should I preach on? Man, they've got all the Bible teaching in the world. I said, Dad, I don't want you to just teach like I teach. I want you to use your spirit-given gift, be an evangelist. Some of those people aren't saved out there. They're sitting there dead. They're interested. They're starting to respond, but they haven't crossed over the line yet to really believe in Jesus. Do your thing. We need to expose ourselves to the gifted evangelists. You want to really take advantage of those opportunities to go and be in places where there are gifted evangelists. But there was also not just the evangelist in the book of Ephesians, there was also the pastor-teacher. There's a plurality of leadership, there's a plurality of elders and deacons in the church who are responsible for leading it, but there was also those that were gifted at the teaching of the word of God. And that's a very important role. We want to stress the plurality of leadership, but we also recognize the giftedness of the pastor-teacher who teaches us the word of God. And those in our midst that have that responsibility, it's not necessarily just one person, but it's very important to realize that that person is a messenger. Like, my major gift is to be a messenger that gets across to you by the Spirit's empowerment the truth that Jesus wants us to respond to, and that's a very, very strategic part of the body of Christ. The Lord Jesus says, he says he's holding this messenger in his right hand. He holds the messenger in his hand of power, in his hand of direction. And I want you to pray that anyone who teaches the word of God will recognize that it's so important that they be held in God's right hand, that they respond. The the right hand is the hand of power. It's the hand of Christ's authority. It's the hand of his anointing. It's very important for us to realize that the only authority someone that's teaching us the word of God has is that they're in the right hand of God. But it's also important for them to recognize that responsibility. I take very seriously, probably the most serious responsibility of my life, other than my intimacy with the Lord and my intimacy expressed in my individual family, is probably the the, the most important priority beyond those things is what I'm doing right now in the exposure of God's message to you. We must never, never, never move away from the centrality of Jesus' message to us revealed through the scriptures, through reading letters like the letter to the church of Ephesus. You understand that? 
And that's who the letter to the Ephesian church was addressed to because the Lord realized if you just write a letter to everybody, nobody's responsible. It probably won't get copied. It probably won't get read. We all know about that. If you want to get something done, you have to assign someone the responsibility and they have to take it. And what the Lord is saying, I write this letter to the messenger, the individual responsible in the Ephesian church for the copying of letters, for the distribution of those letters, for the reading of those letters, for passing it on to other parts of the body of Christ. And those early messengers did their job so well, we literally have thousands of copies of the manuscripts of this sacred book. Man, you've got the papyri and the pages of your book sitting right in your lap and you can take it home with you and the Spirit of God can continue to to talk to you. So that's the messenger of the church in Ephesus, right? You say, Dave, why did he write to the church of Ephesus first? Because in Asia, it was the dominant city. It was the leading city. Uh, It wasn't the capital city, but the financial capital, the power capital was the city of Ephesus. It was a city that was founded about, oh, about 400 years before the time of Christ. Some Greeks came over. They joined with some native people. In fact, some of you would be interested that the tribe of the Amazons in cartoons and some movies, they talk about this tribe of huntress women that would be the leaders of their tribe. That's from this area, around the area of of Asia and in the city of Ephesus. And they were called the Amazons, the huntress. As the Greeks came over, the people were worshipping this Mother Earth goddess that was very much like the ancient Canaanite god of Ashtart and the fertility cults. And they united it together with their Greek ideas and then later their Roman ideas. And they started to worship Artemis, which is Greek in Latin or in the Roman tongue. It comes over as Diana. And you've all heard the story of great is Diana the Ephesians. I want you to think of a city of thousands of people maybe 250,000 people. I want you to think of that in the heart of that city, there's a gigantic temple to Diana of the Ephesians. It's 425 feet long. It's like 30, 40 times bigger than the Parthenon. It's 225 feet wide. It has close to 140 columns. Many of those columns are covered with gold. And all kinds of precious gems. One of the leading architects of the Greek world under Alexander the Great, the architect that built Alexandria, rebuilt this structure, this temple, when it was destroyed about the time of, a little bit before the time of Alexander coming through Asia. And this temple became the hotbed of a cult distribution of literature, the worship of fertility, the worship of sexuality, the worship of violence, all of that was going out from this gigantic temple. There were all kinds of eunuchs that served in the temple. The priestesses that walked around the temple wore really short dresses. They had one of their breasts bare. It was a very immoral structure. Prostitutes were in the temple precincts that were considered priestesses. And this was the heart of the city. This city would take a month off, would take a month off every year to devote themselves to an entire month worshiping Diana of the Ephesians. There would be flute players and jugglers and dancers. They had theater plays. They had big athletic events. Their theater held over 25,000 people. It was kind of like a carnival where the people were coming from all over Asia and literally all over the ancient world to worship in this gigantic temple, which was at the heart of the city. 
As the Romans began to conquer and they began to come to the city of Ephesus, they devoted, first of all, like to Augustus Caesar and to Julius Caesar. They took part of the temple of Artemis and devoted it to the Roman emperor. So Roman emperor worship and this fertility culture all mixed together in like a big seething cauldron. Later on, as the other Caesars, like Caesars like Hadrian and Severus and some of the other Caesars, they built individual palaces to worship the Caesar. Now, this is the city that the Apostle Paul walked into in the early 50s. He was on his way back to Jerusalem on his second missionary journey. He left two workers, Priscilla and Aquila. They were leather workers and tent makers, and they were just people that work in jobs, just like almost all of you. They would be the equivalent of someone that worked at, at North Texas or at TXI or at Chaparral Steel or at, at one of the plants up in Dallas. Priscilla and Aquila arrived in the city, but they had a burden to reach that city. There was a young man who was an eloquent preacher that was speaking in the synagogues of Ephesus, a man named Apollos. But all he'd heard about was the proclamation of John the Baptist, that the Messiah was coming and we needed to get ready for the Messiah. And Apollos, his gift was being used. People were getting ready for the Messiah. And Priscilla and Aquila heard him teaching. They took him out to eat, took him over to their home, took him to eat. And Priscilla and Aquila went on and told the rest of the story to Apollos. They told him how Jesus had come and that John had prepared the way for him. And Apollos became a believer in Jesus and an eloquent proclaimer of Jesus. And so the birth of the church took place with Priscilla and Aquila and then Apollos' ministry. And then the Apostle Paul came back and he spent three years, longer than he spent any other place, he spent three years ministering in the city of Ephesus The church became incredibly strong. It tells us that the gospel went all over Asia from this church. And I want you to capture a vision of what a church can do. This church, founded in this heathen, idolatrous, immoral city, became a church that became the fountainhead for the next 300 years. Much of the fountainhead of Christianity flowed from the city of Ephesus. Some of the major church councils were held in the city of Ephesus. This incredible birth of a church, the Apostle Paul coming and ministering, proclaiming the gospel, people got excited about it like Epaphras, we learned, went from Ephesus and founded the church in Colossae, and the gospel's going forth. It's a church that's hot for God. They received more direct letters in the New Testament. They received the book of Ephesians. Probably 1st, 2nd, 3rd, and John was addressed to them. The book of Revelation was sent to them, just like we're studying here. First and second Timothy, Timothy was probably ministering in Ephesus when Paul wrote the pastoral epistles. This church is one of the dominant churches in all of the ancient world. A tremendous witness. They have a tremendous history. But 30 years after the apostle Paul was there, John is writing back to them. And I want you to read what Jesus, as he evaluates the church, what he says. Our strength is accurate doctrine. Our strength is accurate teaching of the word. But our great, great failure can be we can start being very accurate for the word, but the fervency of our love for Jesus and the fervency of our love for one another can begin to grow cold. Read the letter of the church of Ephesus. As you're reading, I want you to think about this. What about your marriage? As I've been reading this passage, I say, what about my relationship with Mary? Does it have the fervency, does it have the passion that we had in our first 
in our first love? If not, why not? And then I relate that. What about my relationship with the Lord? Do I have the passion with the Lord? And I want you to pray for me. Because I really think the letter to the Ephesian church is what I'm really wrestling with now. Man, we've been doing this for a long time. And Mary and I in our marriage are moving into, man, we've got grown kids. Some of you ladies are saying, man, I'm dying. There's no passion anymore. And you're really vulnerable. You're going out looking for other passions. Read the letter to the church of Ephesus. Because the Lord tells you what you need to do to rekindle love. Some of you are sitting there saying, you know, Dave, as you speak to us today, nothing happens to me. I don't hear any voice. I don't feel close to the Lord. I just feel dead. Then spend some time alone reading this letter and say, Jesus, you're walking here. You're right here speaking to me. I want you to talk to me from the book, the letter that you wrote to the Ephesian church. Because this letter not only exposes the the danger of losing first love, but this letter tells us how we can rekindle first love. Some of you are brand new believers. You're saying, Dave, I don't even know what you're talking about. Man, I'm so hot to try. I'm so excited about this stuff and I want to get into it more and more. You need to read this letter because it will protect you from ever falling out of first love. But like close today, I'm concerned about some of you. And when I ask you, when was the last time you had some intimate, alone time with Jesus? When was the last time you just stopped your schedule and spent some alone time with Jesus? If there hasn't been that time with your spouse like that, then there's no romance. And your marriage starts to die. And what do you do? You've got to stop and spend some alone time and read this letter And let Jesus talk to your heart. Let Jesus talk to your heart. And he'll expose to you three very important things you need to do to rekindle the fervency of your first love for him. 